I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 44, we read Hard Line by Colin Duick from 2010. Colin Duick studied politics at Princeton University and international relations at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He was an assistant professor of political science at the University of Colorado Boulder from 2001 to 2006, and is currently a professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. All right, so the theme of this episode is, what is a conservative foreign policy? And it turns out that that question is harder to answer than it would seem on first glance. Mm -hmm. Just compare George W. Bush's grand vision of bringing democracy to the world through the projection of American military power. Compare that to Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria and basically abandon the Kurds. The media will refer to these two polar approaches as both far right, of course, because anything a Republican president does is far, far right. But in this case, that judgment just seems incoherent on its face, at least it does to me. Mm-hmm. So which one of those is conservative? Is it Bush? Is it, is it Trump? Or is there a common thread running through both somehow? And that's what Duick wants to explain to us. He does it by walking us through Republican presidents and prominent members of Congress from modern times and how they viewed foreign policy. And these guys differed substantially, but they also shared some common core beliefs. And the kind of the common thread that Duke finds running through all these is kind of an overarching kind of hawkishness and intense American nationalism. He says, since the 1950s, conservatives have generally been comfortable with the use of force by the U.S. in world affairs committed to building strong national defenses, determined to maintain a free hand for the U.S. internationally, and relatively unyielding toward potential foreign adversaries. In a word, he says, it's hard line, which is the title of the book, hard line. American conservatives view themselves as watchdogs of the country's security. Yeah, I mean, to to find that one common thread, it kind of makes sense among conservatives that it's it's nationalism and it's... um, you know, even hawkishness, you know, a willingness to accept that there are there are things going on in the world and there are consequences and there are trade-offs. I mean, that that, mm-hmm. that aligns with conservatism, you know, across the board. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that, that, that this nation is special to us, that it's exceptional. You know, no matter what you want to do with our military presence around the world, if you want to have one at all, I think that if you talk to any conservative or any Republican, you're, you're likely to hear that kind of sentiment. That sort of, you know, America is a special place. America is, you know, it's our country. It's, it's different from other countries and that we have to defend it more than we have to defend some sort of vague world order or common, you know, uh, humanity. Mm. So I, yeah, that, that rang true. And it's, uh, it's definitely a, a common denominator among all, all Republicans I've ever talked to. Yeah. And so, so Duick is going to present some history and walk us through all these all these presidents, as we said. And it's it's more of a history than it does than it presents unique ideas, which is in that sense it's a departure from our usual pattern on the podcast. We focus more on ideas, but 
Kyle and I wanted to do this because it's because defining a conservative foreign policy, it's a lot like defining conservatism in general. You know, there are some common threads, but there's also some some differences and some tensions. So the way that these presidents over the over the past century have approached foreign policy, we can see that we can see the the nationalism, the the hawkishness, the deep feeling of uh, American exceptionalism, but they still, you know, approach things very differently. So. Yeah, and, and Duick in the beginning of the book identifies four schools of thought that all conservatives seem to fall into, and that they kind of overlap with each other, and you can be more than one at once. I think mm-hmm. he talks about realists, hawks, nationalists, and anti-interventionalists. So realists emphasize the balance of power, coordination of force, and diplomacy, and you know that. It takes states based on their international behavior, not so much about, you know, what are you doing to your own people? A realist doesn't really care about that. He's more about great power confrontations. And we'll get into some of the people who he talks about in this book, and some are more of this than others. Hawks emphasize the need for accum- accumulating military power and argue for armed intervention overseas. Basically, you know, the, the sort of projecting American strength, intervening when necessary. Nationalists emphasize the preservation of our national sovereignty and an unyielding approach to foreign adversaries. So they're more suspicious of international institutions, don't want to bind the United States in a way that we can't, that, that limits our freedom to act as a, as a, as a power. And then the anti-interventionalists emphasize avoidance or dismantling of strategic commitments overseas. Not so keen on NATO and the other things and the UN, more about protecting this country and its immediate vicinity and only really responding to actual threats to the homeland. So, you know, all of these kind of come together. There, there are different factions within conservatism and, and republicanism that, you know, different people embody these. And as you're listening, you may be thinking of different senators and, you know, I mean, Lindsey Graham is on one side and that Rand Paul's on another and, mm-hmm. you know, where does the president lie? That, But it's, it's about coalition building. And I think Dueck talks a lot about how, the foreign policy that the Republican president typically comes up with often has to account for that coalition building as much as it accounts for his own overarching vision of what America should be. He's got to mm-hmm. bring the people with him. He's got to bring the party with him. And uh, if he fails to do that, that's when you uh, end up with sort of a, a failed presidency at the end. Yeah. And he specifies, it says the crucial factor in all of that is the presidential leadership. So even though we have all these different, you know, quasi factions, who fall into the realm of conservatism, you know, it's kind of like, what is the, what is the, what's the president's views and can he bring, bring people along? So let's go through a few of these and talk a little bit more about more interesting ones. So he starts with Teddy Roosevelt, who he identifies as having a, a realist approach to foreign policy. And remember realism means emphasizing balance of power. So Teddy Roosevelt's mantra, remember, speak softly and carry a big stick. He was, he wanted to avoid commitments that couldn't be kept. You know, he, he supported a regional balance of power between Japan and Russia and even signed a sphere of influence agreement with Japan that recognized American influence in the Philippines and Japanese influence in Manchuria. These days, that would almost be anathema to say, like, yet mm-hmm. China, you get the South China Sea and everything over there and, you know, we get Latin America, but that, that was just a straightforward, you know, realist foreign policy. That immediately following Roosevelt was uh, William Howard Taft, and he was 
what we would probably refer to as kind of an internationalist, and that is believed in the creation of a more peaceful and prosperous world through promotion of international trade, international law, and investment. So this is a theme you, you'd see for today. Let's call it the Wall Street Journal hmm. foreign policy is what we need is um, economic interdependence and international law and more trade and those are the those are the factors that bring pretty peace to the world. But then in the run up of World War 1, Republicans were actually pretty split because you had this same President Taft and other establishment Republicans. They sympathized with Great Britain against Germany, but they were also wary of military intervention in fact thought it would hurt their <laughs> trade lanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they preferred international law and arbitration versus you know there were some hawks like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge who supported intervention in Europe feared that a German victory would represent a defeat for American ideals. And and then you had President uh, Woodrow Wilson, who's a Democrat, obviously, but but we'll see echoes of this with George W. Bush. But Wilson led the nation to war on his idealistic grounds, that is to defend democracy and international law, open markets. He, he was kind of the, the brain trust of the League of Nations, which later became more or less the the concept for the United Nations that, that would secure universal sec- collective security is what he had in mind as, you know, a, a peaceful world that, that, uh, he had that great ideal of democracy. Yeah. And, and, and opposition to that league of nations, um, kind of galvanized the Republican party after the war. And I think there was a lot of splits within the party. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a conservative progressive split overall within the party you know, owing to Roosevelt, but, you know, trust for international institutions and what to do with with them, you know, um, after Wilson, we had had Harding, Coolidge and Hoover, and they didn't, didn't hate international institutions. I mean, uh, Coolidge supported joining the world court, you know, some things like that, but I don't think they, they didn't want us to be entangled with Europe, Mm. want to trade with the world. You know, but they didn't want the, the the problem with the League of Nations is it was had that sort of treaty commitment to um, defending innocent nations who were attacked, and I think to especially people in Congress, they said no, that it it's our job to say who we go to war with, not some treaty. Mm-hmm. And these objections would come up again after the Second World War, but they were kind of muted because by then we realized we had to be in the world and couldn't completely withdraw behind our borders. And so you see kind of like two two major, we'll call them factions, that, that kind of arose in the 20s and 30s that carried pretty much till, probably basically till Reagan, but that is kind of a Midwestern rural members of Congress who were protectionist, skeptical of multilateralism, opposed to foreign aid and foreign entanglements and expenses. And that that faction was led by Senator Bob Taft, who was the son of uh, President Taft. He was a conservative, anti-interventionist, and in the in the run-up to World War II, he argued that Euro- a European war didn't threaten U.S. interests because we had massive ocean barriers on both sides. So we ha- we have no you know obligations to, to promote democracy. And in fact, he suspected the war would lead to more centralized government, higher taxes, and regulation. Which, of course, he was one hundred percent right about that. Yeah, yeah, that was true. And then on the other side, you had kind of the north northeastern republicans who were urban or suburban they were you know moderates on social policy and very much 
in favor of international trade, international law. You know, these guys were heavy into finance. A lot of them had Ivy League pedigrees and expanding the executive branch, what they uh, favored. And so you had kind of these two major factions through the 50s and 60s. And in the run-up to uh, World War II, you know, these days, of course, we look at World War II as the great American victory, and it was. But in the run-up to it, there definitely were different views among the among Republicans we're talking about, among uh, conservatives. You know, you had Senator Bob Taft and these Midwestern Republicans saying, we just don't need to get entangled. This is a this is a European mess. This is a, an, a long-standing argument between them, and they can't get their house in order. That's their problem. It's not ours doesn't it doesn't affect us and then you had sort of the northeastern republicans uh conservative conservatives who who viewed it as we have to stop you know this nazi threat and i wanted to say and mention real quick uh, the america first committee we heard america first before mm-hmm. yeah well it really came to was the, the american first committee and it was actually led by business interests who were who were organized against the war <laughs> viewed it as disruptive to to trade. So anyway, you see that you have this long history and in, in World War II, we'd say, oh, of course, you know, we'd support fighting the Nazis. But, you know, there's a real question, even among Republicans, I mean, even among conservatives, like, is this something that we really need to do? Is this our problem? Yeah. And right up until we were attacked, uh, I think that was, uh, there was room for discussion. But of course, once, once the bombs started falling on Pearl Harbor, Taft and every other Republican got on board with the fight. Yeah. And there was, yeah, there was not really much dissent in either party against, you know, whether we should fight World War Two. I mean, thing is, when you're attacked, you're kind of in it already. There's not really, yeah. it's not about should we go to war. It's like, well, we're at war. Let's 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 do it. Let's win it. But there was, I mean, Taft, I think, resisted some of Roosevelt's policies during the war, like the Atlantic Charter, where Roosevelt and Churchill were sort of deciding how the world was going to be after they won. And a lot of it was about about international institutions, about a new, about what became the United Nations, about, you know, the idea that democracy should be spread to the world. And I think Taft had the same complaints about that that he had before the war. It's how much is this going to cost? How much is it going to be? How much is it going to be American blood and treasure going to be spent doing this? Shouldn't we really be concentrating on you know, securing the blessings of liberty right here at home, mm-hmm. then spreading them to the world, you know, with this evangelizing zeal. That That's still a debate that goes on today. Yeah, and as united as America was during World War II, Democrats, Republicans, basically the same mind, you still had issues that today you would see some fierce debate over. You know, like you said, Senator Taft called the Marshall Plan wasteful spending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're kind of like, Wow, really? Yeah, I guess I I could see that making that argument, even though I mean it was terrifically successful. But opposition to the creation of the United Nations, I mean, we absolutely still have uh, folks who hate the United Nations, and and even some who weren't all that thrilled about NATO, which to, to us just seems like common sense. But yeah, that, that you was could see how these these arguments would at the at the beginning of these ideas, kind of like, is this really going to work? Is this this is worth our money, you know? Yeah. And I think there was no, I mean, now looking back, we know there wasn't another world war, you know, but I think to them, they yeah. said, do we want to tie ourselves to Europe when these guys seem to fight each other to the death every generation? Yeah. yeah. You know, do we want to get dragged into their mess? You know, and it, it's a good question. I mean, NATO worked to prevent that from happening. So I think we could say, you know, 
with the benefit of hindsight, it was a tremendous success and still is important. But I can definitely understand, you know, after, you know, so many people died in those two world wars, you might not, it's an understandable impulse to say, let's, you know, like Taft said, we've got these two oceans between us and the rest of the world. Let's just concentrate on what's over here and yeah. try to keep our boys alive. And it, re- it really makes you wonder had there not been that, that Soviet communist threat. And, you know, obviously uh, a lot of conservatives were deeply uh, critical of FDR at, uh, at Yalta, more or less handing over Eastern Europe to, to the communists. And, you know, we, you fight back these Nazis to get out of Western Europe and then just give away Eastern Europe. Um, But had there not been that threat, you know, would NATO have ultimately just been a waste of money and they would have fought each other? I mean, who knows? I mean, Mm. the, the, the way that history unfolded, it was important for all Western European countries to hold together. And you even had, you know, the rearming of Western Germany, West Germany, when uh, you can imagine like the French and the British be skeptical of that. Yeah. It was all in, in trying to work in unison against, uh, against the Soviet union and, and the iron curtain. Yeah. It was that, that communist threat kind of brought Taft into a more internationalist perspective because he, he did want to, you know, hold, hold the line against communism. So when, you know, when we're fighting in Korea, he supported that, but then, yeah, there's that, that tension of, it's a tension we haven't heard lately, but you know, of, uh, should we be spending all of this massive amount of money on the military? Yeah. Republicans don't say that that much anymore, but it was a bigger part of the budget back then. So maybe there was more reason for concern. And also there were, we were closer to a time when the budget was small, mm-hmm. you know, it blew up during the depression. It blew up even bigger during the second world war. And I think afterwards, a lot of Republicans like Taft were thinking, all right, depression's over, war's over back to, uh, having this tiny government again and yeah, yeah. Democrats weren't having it. And so I could see his suspicions of, well, look, if we're going to be getting involved with everything, we're going to have troops in every country. How much is this going to cost? How much, how much, how much are we going to squeeze out of our people in taxes? Does this make sense? Is this going to change the basic form of American government? And it did. Mm-hmm. It, it, it did. He, oh, he's, yeah. he's not wrong about that. It's just, I think he also by the end came to realize that if we didn't fight the communists, no one else would. No one else could as well as we did anyway. I mean, France was used up by the war. You know, Britain was weakened. You know, who who else is going to do it? And ultimately, that's the compromise all all conservatives had to make is that there was nobody left to to fight the red menace but us. Mm -hmm. So we had to do it. So Taft ran for president when Eisenhower did. That was Eisenhower's principal uh, challenger. And Eisenhower did not look kindly upon Taft, his protectionism, his, you know, isolationism. But even Eisenhower as a president himself was criticized as being pink, right? Because he, he was a very committed anti-communist, but he also worried about bankrupting the U.S. through uh, an expanded military. I mean, he was, he was strongly behind military strength, but he also supported, you know, foreign aid, the expansion of international trade, consultation with allies, strong supporter of NATO and he got the U S out of Korea using threat of nuclear weapons to get, to get there, um, threatening the, the Chinese with nuclear weapons. But I think Eisenhower is one of my favorite presidents, but on, on the foreign policy front, his approach was let's be strong militarily, very strong and compete in the, in the arms race, lean on um, American hegemony while at the same time, not becoming overly convinced that, 
more and more and more spending was it was actually the answer but instead use targeted spending work with allies apply foreign aid and you had guys like taft who were still pretty critical of that so you have the geo again you had the republican conservative internationalists like eisenhower and then you had the nationalists like taft who were like foreign aid that's a waste of money it's a giveaway kind of opposed to diplomacy and the, the state department and in this area you also had joe mccarthy who was definitely strongly in that camp of, of yeah. uh, nationalists yeah and i think that's eisenhower sort of started the, the theory of detente of you know that, look, we're not going to start another world war to fight the communists we've both mm-hmm. got these nukes it's we've both lost so much in the last war but you know just sort of let's let's pause let's keep them from getting more but not really want to fight russia directly and that's where i think that made him look soft to a certain wing of the republican party who later embraced barry goldwater who was the next person that Dueck profiles here and uh Goldwater's foreign policy was also the subject of episode two of this podcast, if you want to read some more about that or listen to some more about that. Ding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Goldwater was, his his position was, we don't need to contain communism, we need to defeat it. Yeah. So he was really of that, that nationalist, anti-communist hawk, wanted to win in Vietnam, thought that when uh, the Bay of Pigs happened in, in Cuba and the... Uh, the invasion that we supported and then abandoned went belly up. He, he thought Kennedy had, who had also been pretty anti-communist went soft and, you know, we needed to fight harder and we needed to start rolling back the, uh, the communist advances that they had made since the war. And this, um, in the, in the light of the growing nuclearization of the cold war, this freaked a lot of people out and it let Lyndon Johnson portray Goldwater as a maniac when they ran against each other in 1964. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Goldwater said he wanted to escalate in Vietnam to win it. Johnson ran on the idea that this was nuts. And of course went and did it as soon as he got reelected. So that was sort of a, well, that, that was sort of typical. Yeah. Goldwater, I think was the, the leader in that, in the Eisenhower and Goldwater represented this struggle in the post-war Republican party about what to do about communism. And it's, it's one that went back and forth, I think for the next, until the end of the cold war. Yeah. Yeah. Containment or, you know, victory. Yeah. And, you know, with victory, you know, comes those risks, you know, you want to risk having an all out war with an atomic superpower. It's easy to see both sides. Now that we know that we won, you know, it looks like, of course we should roll back Soviet communism. They're not going to do anything, but, Nobody knew that at the time, and there was different leaders involved in the '60s than there were in the '80s, and you know mm-hmm. it, it might have, you know, any one of those, you know, the Berlin blockade or the Cuban Missile Crisis, any one of those could have turned into the the hot war that everyone was terrified of. Yeah, and and you see that tension, the Eisenhower versus Goldwater, kind of like you said, play out over the next thirty years with Nixon and and Reagan. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like Goldwater's kind of a proto Reagan. But so the next folks that he profiles here is Nixon and Kissinger. And he says, Nixon epitomized foreign policy realism, a penchant for bold, innovative departures in international affairs. He sought to place great power relations at the top. And what that means is, is uh, great powers, meaning the U.S., Soviet Union, China. You know, these are the actors in, in world affairs. And so that's where he placed his focus. 
look to replace ideological with geopolitical considerations as the primary concern. The Soviet Union was a serious rival because of military power and not because of its internal government. You know, this is very different than Barry Goldwater and then later Reagan were very focused on the evil, immoral nature of communism. Kissinger and Nixon, you know, have been criticized as as pursuing a pretty immoral foreign policy and that they actually didn't care much about whether the communism itself, the content didn't, didn't concern them. What they can, were concerned with is keeping peace through maintaining spheres of influence and geopolitical strategy. So again, power, not ideology was the best starting point for thinking about how to conduct international affairs. I think, I think Nixon's view was like, or, and Kissinger's especially is Russia is a threat because it's Russia, not because it's Soviet Russia. Yeah. And if right. they were a fascist yeah. power, if they were a democratic power, even, you know, the fact that they were big and didn't like us and competed over the same spheres, that's why we're enemies, you know, yeah. and not because of, you know, the ideas of Marx and Lenin. Exactly. And yeah. I, yeah. And I think Dueck points out that they kind of it went almost too far in that respect. I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, in some ways, because great powers behave as great powers in the world for the most part. But just as we were, um, the American people were motivated by democracy and liberty, the, the Soviet people and their leaders actually believed socialism, at least some of them did. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and the idea that it needed to spread and cover the world was, that's an ideological thing. That's not just about power. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think Nixon maybe overcompensated against the... Uh, grand ideological struggle of the Goldwater wing. Yeah. Yeah. So that could be right. But looking at using the viewing uh, politics, geopolitics through this lens is really what gave him the, the opening to visit China and, and open China to the U S because through, through his, through this lens, you know, the Soviet union and China were actually, even though they were both communist, they were actually geopolitical enemies and Mm -hmm. so that created some diplomatic opportunities you know if if you're looking at it from an ideological standpoint you know all communism is bad which even if we agree that it is like china and russia and the soviet union they they actually had serious differences they had their own border skirmishes and you had a china and a mao who were actually interested in balancing their relationship against against the soviet union the same as the u.s was so in some ways it's definitely immoral as you described in other ways it's brilliant because mm-hmm. you know it uh, it opened the way for i mean it, it made more, even more possible a president reagan who attacked the the, the soviet system head on yeah the open we, the opening with china was definitely strategic brilliance and i don't think any other president i mean they, they it is like a cliche to say only nixon could go to china but it's it's true. Only he's the only one who had that strategic vision, along with Kissinger. He's also the one of the only ones who had that background of sincere anti-communism. So no one could mm-hmm. accuse him of being soft on communism. I mean, yeah, you know, from yeah. his earliest days in government, he went against communists like Alger Hiss, who were you know, spying for Russia, you know, in in this country. And he, he's always been an anti-communist. So. If he's going to shake hands with Mao, that trust he had built up with over the decades made it possible. And and mm-hmm. his realist outlook is, you know, sort of unlocked it in a way that other people couldn't. Mm-hmm. And But you could see how, let's call it the Goldwater wing, would just be furious over this concept of detente, you know, mm-hmm. detente meaning 
like you described with Eisenhower, you know, Nixon was not interested in challenging the Soviets directly, definitely not interested in talking about their internal politics or their ideology. You know, he was just interested in balancing their power. And so that became referred to as detente. And obviously, you know, you had a real faction of hawks in, in the Republican Party and among conservatives who were very critical. And when Reagan came in, came onto the scene, he described detente as what a farmer has with his turkey until Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. It's true. It, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's like the uh, it's like the Christmas truce in World War One. You know, the guys come off in the first Christmas in 1914 when they come out of the trenches, they played some soccer. But you knew the next day you're going to be killing each other. It was yeah, just yeah. it was just a pause, and people don't want it. People don't want a pause. It doesn't make you safe. You know, detente. They, no, detente doesn't secure the nation. Secure our interest. It just means we're not going to die today. You know, so I could see. You know, re- for Reagan, the way to keep this nation secure is to win the Cold War, not just to keep the enemy from advancing. So Duick says Reagan pursued a daring, ideologically charged strategy of aggressive anti-communist containment and indirect rollback, leavened by considerable tactical pragmatism. You know, he was Reagan was convinced that the Soviet Union could not last as a viable economic system. He didn't believe that they could match the U.S. in an arms race. That is absolute conventional wisdom for us today, but it certainly was not then. Mm -hmm. And Reagan used this massive arms buildup to pressure the Soviet Union into arms reductions. And he was so so criticized by folks on the left and in the media and even some Republicans who, who viewed him in the same light as critics of Goldwater. And that is, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a maniac. We don't know what he's going to do. He's like, mm-hmm. we, we're caught in this arms race and building more and more nuclear weapons, which obviously is going to lead to nuclear winter and a world war three and the destruction of the human race. And, but what was really interesting about, about Reagan is he actually hated nuclear weapons and he himself was ultimately pretty unwilling to risk political or policy failure for the sake of ideological purity. Duick says he actually didn't really get us into wars. I mean, there there was Grenada, you know, there was Lebanon, but those, those were small, those were skirmishes. There was no major war. So he wasn't the, you know, the wild eyed psycho that folks criticized him as being. His idea was to build up U S arms because he just didn't believe that the Soviet union could keep up, keep up with us. It also, it, it, it shows that he understood something that a lot of the idealists don't is you can't negotiate peace from weakness. Right. Yeah. You know, if it, there were, there was then, and even it's still around now, this, this radical movement for unilateral disarmament, you know, it, which started kind of in the eighties. And I, I don't know if it was a KGP plant, but it certainly served their interest. The idea that one nation should disarm like as a show of good faith or something. It's like, <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> and even, but even if you didn't believe that, the idea that you should, I mean, after Vietnam, we're, the army was weak nation's morale was weak. Reagan needed to build that back up before we could go toe to toe with the Soviets and say, you know, we're as tough as you tougher. Even we've got better stuff. We've got a stronger military. We've got as many nukes as you let's, if you want to start calming down, if you want to start disarming, okay, but we got to come to the table together and you'll never, I mean, if the Soviets thought they were winning, which, you know, after Vietnam, you could think, yeah, maybe they are. That's why they went into Afghanistan and, and they, they kept expanding. Yeah. 
they they felt like history was on their side and it's i mean it's part of marxism to believe that history is on your side that's 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 their ideology that their their way of life is inevitable so i think reagan knew they're never going to take us seriously they're never going to hold back or start to retreat if we don't if we're not strong Mm -hmm. so i mean that's weakness does not get you peace strength does yeah and he's just this really profound mixture of idealist foreign policy idealist he's got uh, big ideas he 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 challenges the soviet union on ideological grounds calls them the evil empire calls them immoral says they're doomed you know it's not a viable system find itself on the ash heap of history so at a rhetorical level just attacks them directly something that nixon would not have done Hmm. but then uh but then also kind of an anti-interventionist because he didn't really want to actually start the war but like you said negotiate from a position of strength so his his rhetoric really spoke to all the super hawks and the neocons you know that were on the rise during the 80s and obviously had a massive influence for george w bush later we'll talk about they loved him but then it was it was reagan who took the lead in his own administration to 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 uh, enter into those arms reduction talks in reykjavik and everything you know he was it's like these hawks were just flabbergasted that yeah you know he has this rhetorical heat to him but then is also willing to reduce arms how does that work well that's what he had in mind he's like we need to negotiate from i want to negotiate because i want to eliminate nuclear weapons from off the face of the earth but we need to do it from a position of strength i mean it's just pretty just brilliant it is and if you i mean if you look at human history when somebody starts building up his army it's usually because he wants war right yeah but here it's the opposite and and so i think you could see why people get took, taken by surprise you know well, you know i mean he was portrayed in the, the media was as deranged about reagan as they are about trump <laughs> and you know so he's portrayed as this you know cowboy with a with a nuke in his holster you know and he's gonna he's gonna start war we're all gonna die it's gonna be terrible but it, because i think to them any sort of military buildup is the act of of somebody who wants a fight mm-hmm. but i think Re- reagan is the opposite of that he, he, he the military buildup was to to protect us to make us be taken seriously again and you know as a deterrent which was I, i'm not unique in the world history but it's definitely against the trend of militarism you know we we hear people still talk about the one of the causes of world war one is the military buildups on both sides you know the constant the arms race you know in in battleships and and armies and whatnot and that you know just the idea this idea that a lot of weapons lying around you'll eventually have a war i don't know if that's true but it certainly wasn't true in reagan's case you know he he was looking for peace. He, he didn't want to be under nuclear threat from an evil empire anymore. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it worked. All right. Because we're getting late, let's do, let's touch a little bit on the, the folks who are next and then give a little bit more thought to George W. Bush. So, so after Reagan, we had George H. W. Bush who Duick says temperamentally rather than ideologically conservative, he emphasized caution, stability, and prudence in international affairs emphasis on family, personal relationships, decency, humility, you know, love of country. So we use the example, for example, of, uh, of the Iraq war, the first Iraq war, you know, Bush used his own personal diplomacy relationships that he had built with Saudi Arabian princes over, over decades to construct a broad coalition, which also included some, 
Arab countries like Egypt and Syria. You know, he he secured the UN resolution authorizing force to to eject Iraq from from Kuwait. But at the same time, he stuck to his mandate. You know, he didn't he didn't march to Baghdad. He he didn't uh, run to the support of the Kurds when when they had their uprising. Instead, he he was very temperamentally prudent and uh, a very form uh, realist foreign policy uh, practitioner. Like this is this is what we need to do. I'm going to get support for it. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do that limited thing, and then I'm going to get out. And and on on China, where he had the chance to do sort of what Reagan did to the Soviet Union, he took the opposite tack. He took the more of the the uh, old William Howard Taft dollar diplomacy, you know, of the yeah. sort of northeastern Republican idea. You know, more trade will liberalize them, and you know, being on good terms and in, welcoming into welcoming China into international institutions will make them less of a threat and, you know, make them more like us, you know, mm-hmm. where I think Reagan would have done what he did to the Soviet Union and said, no, let's put the economic pressure on them. Yeah, let's keep the heat yeah. up, you know, let's challenge them, you know, where they, where they have military adventures, let's fund the opposition, you know, where they, where they want to develop themselves. Let's have Western companies not work for them and, and build up their infrastructure. The same thing as he did with uh, when the Soviet Union was trying to expand their gas and oil infrastructure and Western companies were working for them. And uh, Reagan put an end to that because why should we help the enemy? Why should we help them be stronger and more self-sufficient and prop up their illegitimate yeah, system? Yeah. <laughs> Bush went the other way on China. Yeah, and with uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, he gave the Soviet Union space where you could see maybe a Reagan like overplaying his hand a little bit by mm-hmm. uh, yeah. loading or spiking the football or so I'm, I'm a huge Bush fan, but here's a guy who didn't really, he didn't, he, he called it the vision thing. He didn't have it. You know, he, he wasn't, mm-hmm. he wasn't big on, on strategy, but he was, he was brilliant on the tactical level and interpersonal relationships and that sort of thing. So a- after Bush though, we had the Clinton era and it's like the, the, conservatives shifted back to the reverted back to the the Taft attitude of opposition to foreign aid, you know, opposition to the UN, not wanting any military intervention. We don't need to be the world's police officer. I I remember Mm -hmm. folks around where I grew up, like the adults were always saying that we don't need to be the the world beat cop, you know, let them do their own thing. It's not our problem. We're safe. You know, this idea of a peace dividend, like the, the Democrats were talking in terms of Hey, we don't have to spend so much money on the military anymore. So let's 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 uh, t- dial that down, which they did, and you know let's use that money on domestic programs. And so, you, and, and while at the same time, Republicans were also kind of agreeing, like we don't we don't need to be policing the world or worrying about what's going on in in far flung places. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, and and it, it, we had the you know the Rwanda genocide at that time. We had the the Bosnia thing. Bosnia, yeah. All right, then George W. Bush, he campaigned as very modest foreign policy of uh, along these same lines that we've just been talking about during the Clinton years. You know, we don't need to be the world's policemen. We need to be circumspect in international affairs. We no don't need nation to be, uh, building. No nation building. No projecting, you know, U- U.S. power. Instead, you know, we do need a strong military, but we don't need to be, you know, worrying about the internal affairs of all these different countries. And then 9-11 happened and he, yeah. he felt that something more needed to be done. And after toppling the Taliban 
he was still convinced that more needed to be done to contain rogue states. I mean, he was deeply, obviously deeply affected by 9-11 and wanted to respond, wanted to protect America. And so you still all still had that faction of super hawks. You know, these are in at this time, like kind of the real apex of the the neocon uh, group and neoconservatives. We, we had an episode on neoconservatism, Irving Crystal, but neoconservatives in the uh, 50s and 60s that were focused on social issues didn't really don't jump into foreign policy. So if you go back and listen to our episode, there isn't basically any foreign policy there. Irving Crystal wasn't, wasn't super concerned with foreign policy where fast forward, you know, Crystal's son, Bill Crystal and uh, folks at the weekly standard and Paul Wolfowitz, Pearl, Podhoritz, you know, these guys were the ones who were kind of at the, at the lead making this argument for uh, spreading democracy, projecting American power, you know, using our military might to, make the world a better place and a safer place. And it's yeah, kind of like George Bush took that off the shelf and was like, yeah, I want to use this. Yeah. And Duick, Duick makes a point. Even the people we call neoconservatives now, we're not all of them neoconservative before nine yeah. 11. You know, people talk about Cheney. Cheney was a pretty traditional conservative. Yeah. You know, um, it wasn't until, yeah, I mean, they, they saw what was going on in nine eleven, and they saw and they saw you know better than the rest of us what was going on around the world and different terrorist groups, and felt like they had to do something to stop it. I feel like where they where where Bush diverted from Reagan's legacy on this is it's partly a product of the times. Was, you know, Reagan projected American force and funded opposition to communism, but he didn't commit American troops in a big way. Hmm. You know, we had small, like you said, Grenada is a small thing. There was the communists took over that island. We took it back. Okay. Lebanon, we had troops in there, but when it started to go bad, he pulled them out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, and part of that's the times, I think, because we are still pretty close to Vietnam and every conflict that came up, people would say, we don't want another Vietnam. And, you know, they were right to do so. It was a mess. It was terrible. We lost a lot of men for no real reason in the end so reagan was affected by that and you know and the people were affected by it. he knew he was you know, there wasn't popular support for a war even if he wanted one you know he, there was no but in the time between him and george w bush you know we won the gulf war won it yeah. big you know mm-hmm. with casualties in in the hundreds not in the tens of thousands you know and that was it's sort of and you know when we were gearing up for the Gulf War. There was a lot of that. It's going to be a quagmire. It's going to be another Vietnam. And it wasn't. So people had more confidence in us to just go in, whip them, win, you know, no problem. You know, it, so by the time of 2001, and then we go, we go into Afghanistan, whip the Taliban. Like, well, yeah. this is, this is no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Who's next, you know? Uh, and then we're still there. So, twenty. Years yeah, they later. talk about overplaying your hand. This is this was it. So the Bush administration, like you said, he had Cheney, who he also changed after nine eleven. You know, Rumsfeld deserves a lot of blame. I'm not sure that he had this same view of spreading democracy. He probably was remained a you know foreign policy realist himself. But I think where he should deserve some blame is trying to run the war on the cheap. You know, not having enough so not having enough troops. You know, not preparing at all for the keeping the peace afterwards and the nation building that's, that's that was and still is required. But you know, 
the real point here, though, is George W. Bush post 9-11 had this sweeping, ambitious, idealist approach to foreign policy. Of, we're going to we're going to spread democracy around the world. We're going to prevent warfare. You know, we're going to demand freedom all over the world and every nation and culture will welcome democratic human rights. The Iraqis will greet us as liberators. Hmm. Very Wilsonian, like we were talking about before, President Woodrow Wilson and his, uh, you know, idealistic approach to to foreign policy. In a lot of ways, it's a departure from conservative conservative orthodoxy when it comes to foreign policy. On the on, on the one hand, it's very hawkish, so it's kind of an idealistic hawkishness. But on the other hand, it was you know it was a different tack. Now, ten years later or whatever, I guess it's twenty years after. Iraq almost 17 and and we're in the Trump era we can see a definitely a, a serious reversion back to kind of the Bob Taft you know nationalism we have president Trump questioning whether we even need NATO you know <laughs> do yeah. we need NATO he's pull, he pulls out of Syria which would have been breathtaking years ago for for some republican hawks you know GOP uh, conservative hawks but these days i think folks have they're just war weary. You know, they're, they're tired of being in Afghanistan after 20 years or tired of being in, in Iraq. You know, we don't need to. So then it was ISIS and mm. it's always know, something. War and in Syria. That, that's kind of, um, Duick talks about how it's easier to make foreign policy when you're the opposition party because then it's all ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And as we've seen with all these different presidents, a lot of them come into different scenarios with ideas and then things happen like, well okay like taft had to be more aggressive because he wanted to fight communism even though he didn't want to spend the money and the troops and everything else you know the the events of you know the growth of soviet communism forced a change and just like you know bush campaigned on this humble foreign policy then you know they're terrorists kill thousands of people and say, all right well gotta do something you know yeah, we can't just yeah. let this go on this you know we fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here the bush doctrine which is good but then what does it lead to you know and um, you know what are the logical ends of that is it me being over there forever so it's events make things complicated yeah i think that's you know it no matter what ideas you come into office with just like how Obama came into office with a lot of ideas from the left about closing Gitmo and not having endless wars. And the wars are still going on after he left and Gitmo's still open because, yeah. you know, maybe he learned something. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I think, events always change ideas. Yeah. So as our closing thoughts, what are you, Kyle? Where do you fall along this spectrum? I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's, you know, it's, I didn't think the Iraq war was a terrible idea when it was happening. You know, it, it, I was, I don't know if I was gung ho for it, but I thought it sounded good. You know, I thought when Bush talked about democracy being the birth and liberty being the birthright of all mankind, I thought, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, why shouldn't it be, you know, why should it be that only people in the Anglo American tradition have this? Uh, but then, yeah, 20 years of it not working, kind of changes you so I, I mean i i don't know i mean we talk like on the one hand when trump pulls out from the kurdish areas i thought that was a mistake because mm -hmm. i thought it it dishonors our commitments to a pretty steadfast ally but on the other hand it was, we were talking before the show you know when the the Soleimani assassination which let I mean, let's call it what it is when that happened i thought 
good. You know, that's that guy's no good. He's been he's been organizing terror against us and against other Western powers and against Israel and everybody else for years, decades now. Iran's been our enemy for decades now. Good, the hell with them. You know, but at the same time, if that strike had been in Tehran instead of Baghdad, it would have been a different thing because yeah, yeah. <laughs> bombing somebody in Tehran means now we're at war with Iran and. What's that going to be? Another twenty years? Yeah. You know, it's an even it's even bigger than it's it's as big as Iraq and Afghanistan put together. Do we yeah. do we want that? No, I mean it's <laughs> too much. We've it, it's too much. But uh, yeah, so I don't know where I fall. I'm definitely a a nationalist, and a, I don't think I'm much of a realist. I'm, I don't know. It's it's tough to say. I, um, nationalist hawkishness does appeal to me. But what yeah, about you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I am definitely more of a realist. I, I had serious reservations about George W. Bush's second Iraq war. I mean, and I, I was joking at the time, and I guess kind of still do, that neoconservative is another way of saying not conservative at all. <laughs> is I, I guess I just, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say that I straight up opposed it, but I was, I was, I had serious concerns because I just, I don't really believe that, especially through military power, that we can go in and change culture. You know, and we've seen that we couldn't because, you know, I know we've had other podcasts talking about culture matters and, and, mm. uh, you know, history matters and religion matters. And, and, uh, yeah, I think, I feel like America is on this track that, you know, every, every 30 or 40 years, we have to forget what we learned. You know, we have to go to Korea then we have to go to Vietnam, you know, then we mm. have to go to Iraq and, you know, when, when, when my kids are, in their thirties, like we're going to go, hopefully they'll miss the, the draft age. Yeah. But we're going to, we're going to make the same mistake again. And we're going to, we're going to jump in thinking, you know, with big ideas. So I guess I, I'm pretty solidly hawkish when it comes to building a strong military. But for example, with the Suleimani episode, you know, my, my first thought was similar to yours as far as this is a bad guy. He deserves to die and the world is a better place without him. And I had a big, you know, but in my mind, like, but I do not want to have a war with Iran. You know, I just, I'm, pr- I'm pretty anti-war in that way. You know, if uh, I, I probably, I, you know, maybe, maybe I should be ashamed to say this. I'm not sure, but I probably would have been on the side of, you know, Bob Taft heading into World War II. You know, sort of like, look, these guys, they have their, they have their battles. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. You know, let them, mm-hmm. let them fight it out, you know, then they'll take a break and they'll fight it again, you know, um, yeah. but obviously that was the wrong, you know, that would have been the wrong choice in that, in that instance. But that's, that's probably my instincts is uh, to think that way. All right. Yeah. That's it for Duick. Catch us next time. Thanks.